Hi, this is Max Rivlin-Adler, and you're listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible and receiving the perk of getting this episode a bit earlier than our other listeners. Full Stop relies on your support to flourish and grow. On to some great news about Full Stop. We won a Whiting Magazine Award. In the judges' citation of our brilliance, they wrote, A dynamic and richly eclectic platform for criticism. Full Stop has the intellectual independence to remain untethered to the zeitgeist while striving to be fearlessly contemporary in its curiosity and range of topics. We agree. That's what we were aiming for. With this award, Full Stop will be able to pay even more writers for criticism, embark on exciting new projects, and continue to be that eclectic platform the judges found so worthy. This month on the podcast, we're doing a crossover episode. Full Stop founding editors Eric Jett and Alex Shepard have started a new podcast series, which dives deep into the world of Alistair Crowley. Just kidding. It's Jonathan Franzen. They love him. They hate him. They love him. It's a complicated thing they have with him. And they're joined by writer Aaron Summers to discuss all six books of Jonathan Franzen leading up to his newest book, Crossroads. So we present the podcast's pilot episode on Franzen's first book, The 27th City. Enjoy. This is Alex Shepard, a staff writer at The New Republic. I'm Aaron Summers, a reporter at Publisher's Lunch and a novelist. And I'm Eric Jett, an editor at Full Stop. And you're listening to Mr. Difficult, a podcast about Jonathan Franzen. Hi, welcome to Mr. Difficult. This is a podcast that we'll be doing about each one of Jonathan Franzen's six books. Uh, but we thought before we began, we should probably explain uh, why we're doing that, because it's an insane thing to do. So why are you doing it, Alex? (laughs) (laughs) Are you putting this all on me? Uh, Well, I'm doing it in part because I wanted to reread all of Jonathan Francis' books before his newest novel, Crossroads, comes out in October. But I think also because I am at once attracted and repelled to Jonathan Francis, the novelist, and I think this would be an entertaining and interesting way of trying to untangle uh, my thoughts about him. Why are you doing it, Aaron? I sort of have the same conflicted uh, relationship to Jonathan Franzen and his work as you. And I also do a sort of inscrutable Twitter bit where I like ambiguously love Jan- Jonathan Franzen. And I guess I'm I'm trying to figure out if I do actually like him or not and what I'm getting at with that bit through reading all his work. We're both longtime Franzen bitters or people who like to joke about Jonathan Franzen and yeah, for someone who likes to make fun of uh, novelists, particularly very famous and unself-aware ones, Jonathan Franzen is the perfect target, right? He is almost a self-parody all the time. He is constantly uh, making an ass of himself. And yet I think I also, and I think you are like me in the same way, have also, I think, portrayed myself as a much more serious Franzen hater than I actually am. Uh, and I genuinely love a great deal of these books, uh, particularly the corrections, but I think also Freedom and the new one, which we'll be talking about much later. And, and sort of wanted to, yeah, figure out what it is about those books that I, that I do like while also, uh, telling people how much some of the earlier ones suck. Yeah. I've 
posed as both a friends and hater and a friends and lover. Um, and making, I like to like make enemies on both sides of the, of the friends and aisle. Um, but I don't think like my real opinion definitely lies somewhere in between. Like the corrections is brilliant. I'm rereading it now. Um, the corrections is brilliant and the early novels are really, um, they fail in an interesting way. There's a thing with him, you know, I, I say this probably too often, but I just miss him when he's not around. Like all of my memories of the year after a Franzen book comes out, with the exception of Purity, which I just kind of read and forgot about. Uh, but I guess this is only happening twice with the corrections and Purity. But I just, I remember walking around like the year after both of those books came out and being like, I wish I had, or the year after I read both of those books and being like, I wish I had, I could read this again. I wish I could talk about this with people and argue about it with people and make fun of it on the internet and there isn't someone else who really fills that role in literature at the moment of being i think both i think willfully at the center of it but also being a kind of rich target for all that that nonsense yeah for better or worse he's our biggest literary celebrity i think he's like our knausgaard he's what he's what <laughs> we've got he's our he's our ferrante um so you know you can either make peace with that <laughs> or not i guess there's almost something sad about it like we want to talk about books with people and there's not a ton of occasions where so many people are reading the same book and it's unfortunate that all of this kind of has to be on one person's shoulders it would be nice if this attention could be more spread out potentially to authors who have not received any of this kind of attention that franza repeatedly gets but there's also something interesting about Franzen as a person and his books. They're both interesting, but flawed, problematic, annoying in a way that lets us have all of those conversations. And he, every time he releases a book, it becomes an event, an occasion to do this again. Yeah, I think on that on that note as well, that he's somebody who, and, and we'll get into this in a second, the early books are just this sort of huge, he's just shoveling ideas into them kind of willy-nilly. But I think there is like a certain, this is the kind of thing I, I I might be going a little too far in, but there's an ambition in some of those books to be this kind of big zeitgeisty novel that Franzen is, I think at once, like he's making the claim that he is the great American novelist, that he is at the center of this conversation, which is highly irritating and yet there are these moments where he is walking the walk. And yet at the same time, all of these books are deeply flawed and are only products of Jonathan Franzen's deranged mind. No one else could do anything quite like this for better and for worse. Yeah, I think that's why people hate him also is because his because of that claim to the great American novelist thing and because he's like a white guy and people would rather not have it be like an old white dude anymore. I think the the jacket copy on Crossroads also calls him uh, his generation's greatest novelist or something. And I think that that, you know, maybe rightfully pisses people off like and they they would like to see that that be somebody else. Yeah, there's a there's a thing with him where it's like the what if we kissed bit where he's basically always like sort of like, well, what if you called me the great American novelist? And then when it happens, he's like, oh, I never asked for this. And yet his entire career, starting from the point which he's in his early 20s, is him basically begging for this mantle. And then I think he gets it with the corrections. He, you know, pisses off Oprah to try to make himself seem like, I think, a less 
uh, a novelist with less mass appeal than he actually is. Uh, and, and then from, you know, over the last 20 years, he's been sort of wrestling with, with that sort of placement wall, I think at the same time, uh, desperately craving it. So, uh, the corrections was a Pulitzer finalist. Um, and I looked up what beat him that year. Can you guess, or do you know? Uh, Cold Mountain? No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it was Cavalier and Clay, which I like. I don't know if it holds up in the same way because I haven't read it, but it does seem kind of outrageous that something would have beaten the corrections. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, I was thinking about this with the article by Emily Gould that came out of Vanity Fair about the, the literary Jonathans and the state of the Jonathans. And he sort of did outlast them all, right? That that was like Shabon's big swing and he sort of never really hit that level again. I mean, with Franzen, I think, you know, he had two two great books, The Corrections and Freedom, which is more flawed, but still interesting, and then uh, and then Purity. But I think for whatever reason, he's remained sort of central, cult- culturally central in a way that um, the other Jonathans and honorary Jonathan Michael Chabon uh, have not. My, I have a copy of Discomfort Zone. And the way I got that was um, a friend of mine was involved in a book club for the like first time in years because of freedom. This group got caught up in the Franzen stuff and just like wanted to read something by Jonathan Franzen. And they decided, okay, well, freedom is huge. So is there a shorter Franzen book? And to get a shorter Franzen book, you have to go to the, the nonfiction. So they got Discomfort Zone and I think made it through one essay. And we're like, okay, never mind. This is not fun. <laughs> the nonfiction is not the same thing at all. Yeah, I mean, I have a like long-standing theory that there are two Jonathan Franzens, and the one that most people hate is the nonfiction Jonathan Franzen. And that Franzen, he doesn't suck, but he's he's solipsistic. He's not self-aware. He I mean, he does this in interviews as well. He says sort of absurd things. He kind of is not falls into. He's absurdly pessimistic. There's a lack of irony, I think, above all else. And the fiction Franzen is also a lot of those things and like the nonfiction Franzen is obsessed with birds and REM or whatever music from the night post-punk music from the 1980s. And yet I think also there's something that is so much more richer and interesting about that version. And that's not to say that all of the essays are, are so bad, but, but I think that for me has always been the like weird conflict is that anytime you try to make a big claim about Franzen being something, there's almost always something that immediately contradicts it or at least troubles it. Yeah, I also think with the nonfiction, as like curmudgeonly as he seems in it, like a lot of his views have borne out. Like he's too into birds, but (laughs) he's right about the birds. Like he's right about environmental alarmism. He's right. He's right about Twitter and the internet being probably a net evil. Um, you know, like his, his, as much as we want to like dismiss the things he says in those, um, pieces because he seems a little bit strident or something, like he's kind of often proves to be on the right side. Yeah, there's a sort of Cassandra equality to him, except instead of being like a baddie old lady, he's an annoying middle aged white guy, uh, who writes for Harper's or whatever. Uh, but I think, you know, I was thinking about this from my own writing about Franzen which has like sort of wrapped his knuckles about this sort of pessimism. And I was thinking about, you know, his climate writing in particular, you know, stuff that 
I, I and other people have written saying, okay, this stuff is too alarmist and too pessimistic. Well, you know, like basically the entire world is on fire right now. And I mean, Jonathan Franzen didn't predict this or anything, but I think that there is a certain, um, certain prescience there. One of the things which we'll get to in a, in a minute that I think is also interesting about the early books is that, that all of those concerns are still there, but they seem kind of out of whack with, with a sort of later, later France as well. We should probably um, also explain where we've gotten the title of the podcast for listeners who maybe are not as such completists uh, and haven't read read every essay. So um, Franzen wrote an essay about Gaddis called Mr. Difficult about difficult fiction writing. Um, and we're sort of borrowing that playfully making fun of his difficult public persona. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is in some ways the biggest compliment to Jonathan Franzen you could think of, because this is someone who I think wants nothing more than to be seen as like a thorny and difficult writer, a la Gaddis, particularly in the book that we're about to speak about, but who I think ultimately gains literary success as almost a middle-brow writer, at least a very popular, uh, a very popular one. And yet, I think the title still applies, not because his fiction is, uh, is very dense, uh, or even Gaddisy, but because Franzen himself makes it hard to love Jonathan Franzen. And I think this is a podcast about, I guess it is maybe, at least for me, about reluctantly uh, accepting the fact that I do love Jonathan Franzen. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I, I probably love him. If there, you know, like there's that like cliche, which uh, is about like, uh, you know, is, is paying attention a, a form of love or like, you know, devoting attention to something. And it's like, well, I'm rereading all the books. So I guess I must love Jonathan Franzen. <laughs> uh, this is a cry for help. Uh, before we get into the 27 city, um, I thought we could start by at least giving our own personal rankings of the Jonathan Franzen, the six Jonathan Franzen novels uh, as at least a place to start. And then maybe when we do, uh, the the final book, Crossroads, uh, we can revisit these rankings. Okay, I'll go first. Um, I think it's one, Corrections, two, Crossroads, three, Freedom, four, Purity, five, 27 City, six, Strong Motion. Yeah, those are pretty much mine too. I think for right now, uh, although I'm almost done with Crossroads, so right now I would flip Crossroads and Freedom for me. But I I will probably reconsider this as the show goes on. So Crossroads is three for you. Yeah, Freedom's two. And freedom okay. is two. Interesting. Eric, for me, working down number one is Corrections. Two is Twenty Seven City. That is partly because there's only three on this list. Third is going to be Freedom, which I liked. But I was pleasantly surprised by Twenty Seven City. I'd heard bad things, and there are things in here I really like. <laughs> Who did you hear bad things about it from, Eric? You. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, uh, let's uh, start talking about 27th City. Uh, we'll start just by doing a short uh, overview of the book itself. Set in his native St. Louis in a year we are ominously told is somewhat like 1984, the 27th City was published in 1988 when Jonathan Franzen was 28 years old. Originally a 1,200-page draft, it is a messy attempt at, and at times downright homage to, the postmodern systems novels of Pynchon, DeWillow, and Gaddis. The book is bloated at more than 500 pages, and while the plot is very difficult to follow, it is also not particularly complicated. S. Jamu, a young woman from Bombay, has been named chief of police in St. Louis, 
and, as a result, Indians had begun flooding into the city. She draws loyalists to her and they embark on a vast conspiracy that essentially revolves around zoning questions. Her goal is to merge the underfunded, crime-ridden city of St. Louis with the affluent suburbs that have been settled via white flight to improve the lives of everyone. She's also aided by a group of Native American terrorists who appear to only be in the novel so Franzen can make a pun on Indian. To accomplish this goal, it's never really articulated why they want to do it beyond some vague hand-waving about being into Marxism. Jammu targets St. Louis's right-wing business leaders, particularly Martin Probst, a work-obsessed Republican who built the St. Louis Arch. In order to win him over, Jammu and her allies relentlessly target Probst's family. First, they get his college-age daughter to move out and start quarreling with her parents, and then one of Jammu's henchmen seduces and kidnaps his wife. While all this is happening, Probst and Jammu fall in love and have their own affair. The novel ends with the merger failing and both Jammu and Barbara dead. It is, in my opinion at least, a very bad and at times almost unreadable book. But it is fascinating to read as a kind of botched version of Franzen's later novels. Erin, what did you think of The 27th City? I thought that it does not succeed. Um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And there's... Uh, Definitely like the seeds of Franzen's later really good work, like a lot of some of the same stuff. But yeah, I kind of found it to be a bit of a slog. What about you? Yeah, I mean, pretty much the same. I mean, I think almost all of Franzen's books, you know, it's like the German beer law or whatever, like the same ingredients are present in almost all of them. It's and in, you know, vastly different um, quantities and 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 in this book, you see the vague semblance of the later Franzen books, but it's almost as if he's willfully making uh, the book dense and difficult. And um, and I think, you know, is, is obsessed with describing things, certainly, but also of kind of being this sort of very high minded, like smart guy novelist and like burying the stuff that he's best at, which is the family dynamics of, of the Probst family beneath this really really boring um conspiracy that pretty much revolves around you know city council meetings and like changing um changing zoning laws and uh yeah and and really like st louis minutia you get the sense that this is someone who spent an inordinate amount of time in a library working on stuff about tax laws and st louis history uh, and he wants you to know that he spent all that time. And you feel like you're you're there with him reading the tax code of St. Louis for hundreds of pages. Eric, what did you think? I think this is someone who hasn't quite figured out, like Alex said, what they're actually good at. He doesn't quite know where to focus. And in part of that, it's by design. It's an interesting exercise in, like, even if he pulled this novel off exactly the way he wanted to, it kind of shows the flaws of trying to do this. Any energy that would be interesting gets kind of dissipated into these, this, like you said, partly into tax law <laughs> and zoning issues. But he is from this area, right? He's from Webster Groves. He knows a lot about this area and that works its way in. So maybe some of this research is stuff he was just has always been obsessed with. But around like page 350, I'm noticing all these things that we're going to see in future books. There's a lot of things in this book that end up in corrections and freedom. But a lot of these tangents are just, they may have been interesting to talk about for him. They may have been interesting as an idea, but they're just not fun as a reader. A lot of those guys, and I guess I'm just mostly thinking of DFW, 
it seems like they were really into the idea of boring on purpose. And you see some of that here where it's like, is this, is, is he deliberately alienating me to some end here? Like, you know, David Foster Wallace is doing in the pale King, which we never really like see realized, but it's like a lot of IRS shit. Like, is that, is that what is happening with all the like St. Louis zoning stuff? I don't know. Or is it just failed plot? There's something there. I think that is really yeah, I think you've hit on something there where in the later books, I think in, starting in the corrections in particular, he's so good at at natural naturalistic family dynamics and other sort of boring moments that are very revealing or very important to people that are banal in various ways. And they don't feel banal as a reader. You're always invested, even if you detest the characters and what's happening. And yet in this, I think... He's just like the stuff that these people are concerned about is is dumb. Like I'm above it, you're above it. Like the way that these people are all leading their lives in St. Louis, I'm, they're too stupid to figure out this vast conspiracy to take over the city, and instead they're too focused on staring at their own you know belly buttons and worried about you know going to the mall or whatever. Either too dumb, or in some cases, some characters do see pretty clearly the conspiracy that's going on. It just it doesn't change them at all. Their behavior doesn't change, with the exception of maybe this character Clarence, a black character who moves away. But for the most part, you know, Louisa figures it out at some point. Martin figures it out at some point. And it doesn't really change anything. So there's definitely a part of not only does he look down on these people as potentially dumb, but they're also complacent and they have no interest in changing things. And that's part of the whole goal of Martin's group, right? The like municipal growth group exists there to kind of enforce the status quo yeah if that's by design like the sort of like slackness and the lack of um characters caring about the consequences then i kind of like that and it kind of even you know i see like the truth of that today where it's like yeah i see that everything is fucked up and i don't care you know (laughs) or it like because it's like what are you gonna do like everything's a fucked up conspiracy who cares but um, I did wonder whether, like, is that on purpose or is that, like, a flaw of the novel that, you know, no one seems to care what's happening, even if they've figured it out? I mean, I guess there's some debate o- over which generation Jonathan Franzen belongs to, but I am intent on declaring him as the great Generation X novelist in that I think so much of this book is is him sort of looking at family dynamics and then also looking at political structures and being like none of this shit matters none of it makes sense you could basically sub things in and out in perpetuity like you know and this this is a book in which uh regularly indian characters take the places of the sort of white st louisans and pretty much nobody nobody notices or nobody cares there are various moments in which you know members of the probes family are sort of looking at their surroundings and just being like this is dumb. This is stupid. You know, these dishes in the sink, you know, everybody has got dishes in the sink. Like I could have a different boyfriend tomorrow. Like what, what difference would it make? And I think there is maybe something profound in there or there could be. And I think with the corrections, I think he gets there of being like, yes, family is fucked up and silly and caring about it too much, you know, doesn't always makes sense but there is something meaningful in there 
And that, I think what's missing in this book is that he's just like, these people care about dumb shit and there's no inherent meaning in it at all. Yeah, the, the Corrections has heart, I think, that is missing here, not to be corny, but like, there's no heart and he seems to loathe the characters and uh, is sort of like relentless with them. And whereas I think like the Corrections, there's a real generosity, even though he also is like, sort of like unflinching in his portrayal of those people there's um i don't know it's like a more it's more empathetic or something there's also more hope i would say despite what we said about him earlier there's more hope in the corrections right there's some chance that these characters will not only realize what they're doing but also change and that becomes a big part of what he attempts to do later right we can these characters will change in ways that make sense and are believable but in this book in 27 City, they're chess pieces. They're being moved around, yeah. and there's no reason to even worry about what's going on in their heads. Like, there are a lot of, there's tons of frustrated people, but we don't get to see why they feel frustrated. We're just supposed to know everybody is frustrated. The Corrections offers you the great hope that one day your mean, fucked up dad will die and allow <laughs> you to finally live your life the way you want it to. But this book, I think there is a lot of frustration. I think for him, it is like, really a great Freudian in a lot of ways and in the way he sees his later characters but in this like this sort of all the Freudian shit comes from Franzen in this book like his parents did not want him to be a novelist so this book is sort of endless he's endlessly showing you that he can be a writer like he's describing everything it's almost like a Henry James book except uh like I would read a hundred pages of Henry James describing a cabinet or whatever he does above reading another sentence in which Jonathan Franzen describes the way somebody's skin looks, which is all over this book. Uh, and I think, you know, there's another thing there too, where um, his father was a civil engineer uh, and Franzen is showing that he can build a whole big city and, and tear it down. Right. That's something that I think Pearl Segal mentioned in her review of the book. And I think finally, it's not necessarily Freudian, but, this is the product of uh, an intensely ambi ambitious, but also extraordinarily sexually frustrated young man. Uh, it's one of the like weird, weirdest horny books I've ever read, but it's like super horny. Um, the characters are all, none of these characters have sort of concrete personalities. They're all like Playmobil characters, chess pieces, as Eric mentioned. And yet they're just like fucking each other left and right in this kind of soulless way. Yeah, the women are especially wooden, uh, and their sexuality is especially far-fetched. Like, the way uh, the chief of police, uh, Jemu, uses, like, has sex with people to extract favors and extract, like, political, you know, whatever, to do her political machinations. And it's just sort of um, silly, above all, I think. Basically, all the Indian characters, for them, like, sex is a tool for manipulating people. I mean, I think, you know, we will we all talk about this again when we talk about freedom, because there is an Indian character in that book that I think is far more objectionable than anything that's in this one, which is saying something. But I think that for Franzen, at least, in my opinion, I think on the one hand, he, for whatever reason, sees Indian characters as being more connected to their sexuality than non-Indian characters in a way that I think is deeply offensive. Uh, but also, you know, this is someone who's profoundly uncomfortable talking about race and has been really pretty open about that. And I think, again, for reasons that are also offensive, thinks that 
he can kind of get around this problem by talking about Indian Indians and Indian Americans in particular, and Native Americans, as we see in the new book as well. There's an Indian American woman in Purity as well, who That's narrates right. part of the book and then disappears. I mean, you know, Franzen has his things, but this is one of the weirder ones. Um, I mean, I think you're ex- you're exactly right that it's like his way into race, but it's like somehow a le- he sees it as a, a less touchy population. I don't know, like you like it's he's not going to offend an Indian American as much, or I don't know, or he's not as tone deaf. Um, I don't know why Indian Americans. Uh, you know, there's something I think absurd about you know, Jammu's goal is to is to sort of racially integrate St. Louis or to create more opportunity for black St. Louisans. And yet it's all done with virtually no black characters at all. And I think that that, you know, that Franzen is always looking for like intermediaries to deal with his black characters. He's also constantly describing the way all of his non-white characters skin looks in a way that uh, is very, very weird. It always looks like a nut of some sort. Interesting about friends, we've brought this up multiple times, right, is what is he doing on purpose and what is he not? So when you do get to see through a black character's eyes, they're also noticing white people. Like the first, like that's actually how you know a character's black, right? Because they notice some white people. <laughs> and then, but he makes you question, like, did he do this on purpose to show the limited scope of these problems? And what we end up seeing is, you know, he's from... St. Louis, and that it's one of the most segregated cities in this country, right? And we're mostly restricted to people who come into the orbit of Martin Probst, people he comes into contact with, and he just lives a very segregated life as well. And that ends up having those implications in the end, right? All of this is about this big referendum for bringing the county and the city back together. And at the end, after all of these machinations, all this plot, killing Martin's dog. <laughs> yeah. There ends up being no turnout for the vote, so it never actually makes it out of this small circle we get to see. And part of it happened, you know, when the referendum fails, it's brought up. This was no amount of politics, no symbols, no arch is going to overcome the fact that people in the county don't want black kids going to their schools. No amount of debate was going to change that. And it just says, oh, you've been doing all this stuff. You forgot about race it trumps all of these things in this city yeah again i kind of like i think that if that's on purpose it's brilliant like the anti-climax and the the vote that you know not enough people show up for like that i like that a lot and i think that that's like a strong decision but then it also tries to sort of have it both ways by having an ending beyond the ending where like a lot of a lot more plot happens like two people are fully murdered (laughs) like in the last i don't know 50 pages that his wife barbara probst is killed and then jamu herself is killed too and they kind of happen so fast that if you like had zoned out you'd have missed it Mm. so he's like trying to have this like realist ending and then also have it be almost like a thriller there at the end um and i think those two things are are conflicting goals. At the end of Corrections, Chip is walking to the border as he's leaving Lithuania. And he's talking about his screenplay, his failed screenplay, and says, you know, he made the mistake of writing a thriller when he should have written a farce. And I do think a couple of reviews called this a pot boiler, 27 City, right? Yeah. Or a thriller. 
And I wonder, I do wonder if he is seeing that and looking back on this book and saying, okay, I, I messed up. Yeah. I mean, Lee Child is rolling over in his grave when you call this book a thriller. But yeah, I think he's talking about 27 City in Corrections when he brings that up. In part two, also because he, uh, this chip screenplay is also horny as hell. Uh, and <laughs> much like this book. But, you know, I think there's another aspect of, of what we're talking about with the sort of politics of this, of this book where, so we've sort of made the case for how maybe they might be good. But I thought Mishiko Kakutani's review, uh, in the Times at this, at, which came out when the book came out in 1988, it was, has a strong counter argument in which she, she writes, what's more, the storyline about a charismatic Marxist indoctrinated woman's attempt to seize control of an American city by using terrorist tactics and a manipul manipulative alliance with inner-city blacks, sounds like a red-baiting, paranoid nightmare come true. Is Mr. Franson trying to spoof such fears by creating an absurd tale of corruption? Is he trying to point up uh, America's susceptibility to totalitarian politics by writing a new wave version of It Can't Happen Here? Or is he, inadvertently perhaps, feeding this country's worst suspicions about foreigners and populist politics? And I think that I mean, she then sort of praises this sort of jumble of it, but I think that there's sort of just as easily an argument that this book's politics fall under a sort of Tucker Carlson, like nativist argument in which, you know, there are these good business leaders of St. Louis and Martin Probst, while being a kind of satirical figure, is not like, you know, the father in the corrections or something. He's not a sort of outright racist. He's a kind of good small business owner who hates unions, another weird subplot in a lot of Jonathan Franzen books, and likes contributing to you know, his little plot of land. Uh, and, you know, all of this is, is under threat by the sort of vast conspiracy of non-white people who are, you know, literally like sort of anchor babying their way to, uh, to total control, not just of St. Louis and, and of the country. And I think that Franzen, you know, there is one character in this book who's the sort of like Colonel Sanders type tugging on his suspenders and talking about how, you know, he's one of the few people who figures out the conspiracy, uh, but he sounds like a nativist kook. But that to me seems like Franzen being insecure about the fact that he's written a kind of nativist conspiracy and, you know, regardless of whatever his other intentions might be. I think this has aged poorly, but as I was reading it, I was reminded of, you know, the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country. It's about, you know, and this is occurring, this is in the news at the time that Franzen is writing this book. This commune in India, they come to Oregon, you know, looking for religious freedom to do their practice. They buy up a bunch of land in Oregon to start a city. And then a neighboring small town with a tiny population just tries to zone them out of existence. And there ends up, the two end up clashing. There's a bombing. There's some poisoning. There's, I think they say it's like one of the biggest wiretapping cases in American history. So I wonder how much of this may have seemed more plausible when this was occurring than it does now, because now it sounds ridiculous. And why are you doing this? Except, you know, without that, I think you mentioned this, it, it seems like it's just a pun on Indian, like we're in St. Louis, but it's not those Indians. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's the Native American plotline, which is very half-baked. It does seem like he was just going for the pun there, which is 
wild that that would make it into the final book and that some editor wasn't like let's trim away this um bombing the stadium bombing by a um i don't even know how does that even resolve i guess we're to believe that the police chief orchestrated the native american terrorist cell bombing that that doesn't even exist the native american terrorist cell right yeah, so yeah. it kind of ends with her saying it was kind of a just a red herring for people like Nelson and anybody who might be kind of on their trail to like go down that path, focus on the terrorism instead of on their actual plan. But the book doesn't really seem to care about the terrorism either. Nobody's talking about it. Can you imagine a bunch of bombings suddenly <laughs> happening at like the football game and yeah, the, it doesn't spill into subsequent pages barely at all. Like nobody's worried about this. I think the charitable reading of it is twofold. Once it's too convoluted and complicated to get into, but almost every female character, at least in this book, has a weird double. In some cases, someone who is like literally, um, like pretending to be that person or who the novel treats as that person for some time. And that the pun creates a kind of weird double for the Indian group. And I think also there's a sense too of this is a novel obsessed with plots of land. And that Native Americans or indigenous people lived in this land. It was then taken over by the next group of settler colonialists, white people, and is now being taken over again in a, in a kind of, you know, eternal, circular, almost, I think, Franzen would, I'm getting into hot water, we think this is Jonathan Franzen, Hinduistic, like, circular movement towards this kind of return um, which, you know, for, which I think ends up in this book, at least in this kind of nihilism. Um, but in practice, what it is, is just pointless and confusing <laughs> and dumb. And that is, I think, the thing that drives me insane about this book. So. Yeah, I think that's part of the, you know, that's was part of the fun for the first 350 pages, looking for these echoes and similarities. Oh, Barbara is Jammu. Jammu is Barbara for now. But or Dev, Devi is Barbara. Can't even but, get into Devi. But like the problem with the, like, even if you notice it, it doesn't necessarily pay off. Like you've built a nice circle. Good job. It's nice and symmetric and round. That's not that interesting of a shape. I've seen circles before. Like actually show something interesting about these characters, which again is what he's going to do better in subsequent novels. Yeah, all of that, all of um, those ideas, the mirroring and the, um, you know, the complex structure seems young to me. Like, it seems like a really, he wrote this really young and it all seems like someone with a lot of ideas, but not a lot of control yet. But like, yeah, it, it feels like a guy in his 20s who thinks he's like, ha like super smart. Um, and he's renounced this novel, hasn't he? Sort of. I mean, what, what he um, what he said about this novel in an interview, the Paris Review that I think took place around when Freedom came out is that when he looks at it, quote, I see a 25 year old with a very compromised sense of masculinity. There was a direct transfer of libido to the brain. This was my way of leaving the penis out of the equation and going with what I knew I had, which was that I was smarter than most people. So <laughs> that is sort of renouncing the book. But it is, I mean, I think it's, it's oddly right and that this is a book by a really smart guy who wants you to know all the time that he's a really smart guy. 
I the penis is very much in this book. Maybe it's not Jonathan Franzen's penis, but somebody's. But you know, I think that he recognizes that this book isn't very good. And I think, I mean, the new book complicates this, but there is like he ha- there's a I think a structure of his career, an arc in which the Twenty Seven City. He, he, I think Strong Motion is a worse book than this, but it's more of a Jonathan Franzen book than this. The Corrections is kind of the perfect, it all comes together in The Corrections. And then the next two books, Freedom and Purity, which I think is also pretty bad or kind of bad, is him almost losing that sense of control again, um, or at least of, of losing the command over what he's doing. Uh, and, and in this book, I think he he's trying for something and it just doesn't work. And I think I like this book more than strong motion because I think it's a better or more interesting book, but it doesn't feel like a Jonathan Franzen novel to me at all in part. And I think a lot of that's because the character, like the characters just aren't there. Yeah. I think corrections having just read it before this one almost feels like he's collapsed all of this systems thinking down to just the family. Like the family is a system. And if I just focus here, I can not only do my systems thing, but also get into the actual inner lives of these people in a way that's more interesting than expanding out to tax code. I think that's the smartest analysis of like Jonathan Franz's full career of like, <laughs> I think that's so smart. <laughs> um, I was going to say, though, that I really like when um, novelists renounce an early novel. I love it. Isn't that great? Like, that's how you know you've arrived when you're like, that one is horrible. And you can like be public about it. (laughs) David Foster Wallace renounced one too. the broom of the system. He like doesn't want anything to do with. And I think that that like, that's kind of how you know, you've made it as a a major novelist, if you can like publicly be like, that was a shitty book. And I think that that the broom of the system came out right before this one. And you almost feel like, David Foster Wallace's breath on Jonathan Franzen's neck in this book too of him like competing with this other guy who's really smart and kind of abrasive and obsessed with being the big novelist and Franzen's own home life at the time is I think similarly fraught he is um, married to somebody he met in college who's also trying to be like the big novelist and when he goes in and tells her that he's been given a contract for this book, her reaction is to break down crying. And, you know, I think that sort of often gets portrayed as, or Franzen likes to portray it as, as, you know, a moment in which they're of their relationship being juvenile and strained. But I think you also see a household and like a life where a bunch of friends are all constantly competing with each other in a way that is frankly not very healthy at all. And I think in this case, also is not particularly good for producing high quality work. Yeah, it seems like it seemed like a competition over like who is the bigger genius and the way genius is measured is like who can pack more shit into their book. <laughs> There's a lot of shit in this book. Like, and it's not it's... even all of it, right? <laughs> Imagine like trying to edit this with him. It's like we need to take all of this out. It's like, but no, but that's connected to this thing <laughs> and it doesn't make sense on its own, but there's a ripple in a pond in this scene that connects to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think just thinking about Jonathan Franzen's at this age, essentially because he is in some ways still at an obnoxious mid-20-something now, imagining the sort of power of that and annoyance of that young Franzen is like startling. And you can see it on the page. It's just, you know, one of the things that is missing is every book after this has a Jonathan Franzen running around, and usually it's either a little twerp 
or a sort of angry middle-aged man. And it helps. It like really is this like pressure valve for the rest of the novel because you've got Franz in there. You've got Walter or whatever, or Lewis in strong motion to just put, to just vocalize all the stuff that Jonathan Franzen wants the reader to know. If he wants to, if he went to go see a Bright Eyes concert and he thinks that Bright Eyes sucks, well, like, good. He's figured out how to do that in a much more effective way. And this, it feels like the sort of narrator, the, the omniscient voice in this novel is Franz and he's constantly trying to find outlets for it. And as a result, every character is kind of 20% Jonathan Franzen. But even though, you know, they are very different, you know, there's, you know, Martin Probst is very different than Rolf, his kind of perverted brother-in-law, who is very different than the general, who's like Colonel Sanders, and yet they all kind of read the same to me. And you don't have another character to tell him he's being Jonathan <laughs> Franzini, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Franzen avatars also um, allow him, I think, to self-deprecate. If it's, you know, if Chip is the Franzen avatar in the corrections, like, he doesn't exactly go easy on, like, that type of man. Yeah, yeah, I think you just need, like, that level to kind of ironize Franzen's stuff. Because it's otherwise, I think there's just a moroseness about him, which he has maintained throughout his entire career, that just sort of bleeds into everything and just leads you to just kind of be like, all these people deserve what's happening to them. But also because they deserve it, I don't actually care about them. And, you know, I read this book maybe three weeks ago, and I think it's it's hard for me already to differentiate between various characters um, because just it just doesn't have that kind of, you know, he's just not interested in who these people are. And, I, you know, I think to that point, to steal a point that, that Eric had made earlier, I think the thing that Franzen slowly realizes, maybe over the course of this, of this book, I think certainly starting to in strong motion, is that the family is like his system. He's sort of found his, his like Yachtapofna County in, uh, in like just sort of Midwestern families that are all fucked up and confused and that all of the weird, uh, all the sort of big bold ideas that he shovels into this book can actually be done much more effectively via interpersonal relations between difficult and fucked up people on a sort of much smaller scale on the one hand, and yet somehow The Corrections is a much more operatic book than than this is, but it's also a much more engaging one. It's also not funny, this book. <laughs> yeah, Where like it, at all. It should be. I think some of the reviews even call it funny um or or you know call it satire at least but um it's not funny whereas some of the you know the other books are definitely funny in that like cruel franzen way but yeah and i think that's a lot of these other systems novels that he's like imitating here are really fucking funny like pinchin's really fucking funny and that's why those books like you're willing to go with him for a thousand pages or whatever it is because it's like the language is delightful weird shit happens and it's really funny like you're having fun and this book isn't that much fun that becomes a problem when if he does introduce this tangent that isn't really important to this system he has set up but he's just trying to even if he's just trying to make some point about like things go wrong in a conspiracy like this and now we have to go down this path because stuff happens but then he doesn't write that path well enough or with humor or with characters who you care about 
And so you just have to go down this dead end just to get to the end of it. I mean, I think that there's something that's absurd about this or what happens in this book, but the absurdity for Franzen in this is that people even care in the first place that he's almost like confused that, you know, Martin Probst's life falls apart, right? His dog gets run over, his daughter leaves and whatever. She's college age anyways. I don't know why anybody cares about this. Let her go. Uh, and then his wife eventually leaves, slashes, kidnapped, slashes, having an affair. Uh, and, and yet, like, he's just kind of shrugs his shoulders and he's like, it's, it's, isn't it absurd that we care about these things? Isn't it absurd that Martin Probst cares about the county of St. Louis when the city is right over this arbitrary line that's been drawn and is so screwed up? You know, eh. Who, who really cares? And I think the thing that does change in the corrections is that there is a sense of him being like, oh, this stuff might not matter in a kind of uh, cosmic sense, but it, it really does mean something. There's something you can take from it. And I think that the way he treats char- his characters in this is, is there's so much scorn and like it's absurd, but it's not funny because there's nothing like comic about it because it's so, it's almost so mean spirited. Yeah, I think in the later work, you, you can see that he's embraced conventional stakes, like meaning like emotional stakes, what things mean to people. And it makes a big difference, but he's sort of compromised this vision of like the, the huge sprawling systems novel. But yeah, I think that this book actually bears more resemblance to Bonfire of the Vanities um, or a Tom Wolfe book than to a Gaddis novel. Um, or a pension novel. But Bonfire of the Vanities is much more successful, I think, because it has like, the stakes in that are even maybe like overblown and exaggerated. Um, Tom Wolfe is not exactly subtle. But yeah, it felt like that that same sort of one city focused, I'm going to show you how things really work in this town. Franzen would probably hate that comparison. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's I think it's spot on. You know, this almost feels like if well, actually, this sounds kind of good, but if Don DeLillo tried to write Bonfire at the Vanities or something, like, it's so big, and yet it's constantly trying to, like, almost deadpan. It's not allowing itself to sprawl in this way. And, and I, yeah, I think I've come to admire the ambition of it, even though it annoys me greatly. Um, but mostly, I think, you know, again and again, you just are running into the same problem, which is that this, is these are issues that later Jonathan Franzen has solved. And to see like these problems displayed in this way, you're like, well, you figure this out 10 years later, just do it now, you stupid, you know, pretentious child. Totally. I think that's a good way to probably think about strong motion too, which is halfway between, I mean, it's literally halfway between uh, this book and the corrections. And it feels to me like exactly the midpoint thinking wise so that's a way to make reading that novel a little more fun if anyone's reading along with us yeah i think strong motion is weirdly a more fun book to read but it yeah it's um it's much messier than this one and i think it has the same his similar researching problem this is just somebody who loves to tell you that he was doing time in the library like you can always feel and being like, I checked out, you know, 15 books about, in strong motions case, seismology. And he needs you to know that. Uh, and I think eventually that gets worked more seamlessly into the, into the novel. But in this case, 
you know, all the stuff is just like, yeah, we get it, man. You grew up in St. Louis. It's good for you. But it's not, you know, this isn't Joyce's Dublin or whatever, or even like Faulkner's Oxford. It's just like, it, you know, it doesn't ever feel really like St. Louis. He also describes at one point the St. Louis arch as uh, looking as if it's spreading its legs, which is an image that unfortunately will stick with me for the rest of my life. That makes the flight through there <laughs> yes. even grosser when they fly through the arch. That's horrible. Yeah. I had missed that, but thanks. Now yeah. it's with me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is probably a great place to end. Um, do we want to st- conclude by uh, saying our sort of final thoughts about 27 City? Uh, sure. I think that it's um, an interesting book. Uh, and there are, you know, it's a worthwhile read if you are writing a dissertation on Jonathan Franzen. But for the, uh, you know, the the layman, it's probably skippable. I agree. I would not have finished this book if we were not going to talk about it. I don't think that said, I was pleasantly surprised. It's not like the other Franzen novels I've read. And there's just something about that that I like, that there was a different Franzen hiding out there. I do. There's a part of me that really enjoys the systems approach doing these big, ambitious things. And I will always want to read ambitious books, even if they are flawed. But ultimately, pass. <laughs> pass on this one. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big time pass on this one. I, uh, I don't like this book. But I mean, I think it's, again, I think it's interesting only if you want to think about Jonathan Franzen's career as somebody who's constantly mining the same type of material again and again and reconfiguring it into I think telling a kind of similar story about America in the late 20th and early 21st century um, but it just doesn't work like it doesn't work as a, as a novel it only works as this kind of grace note to uh, to better books but first I think there's a worse book coming and we'll be discussing that next week that book is uh, strong motion so with that thank you for joining us on mr difficult bye guys bye and thank you for joining us on this special episode of the full stop podcast be sure to check out the mr difficult podcast at mrdifficult.com or on Stitcher, Apple Podcast, Spotify, etc. We hope you enjoyed it. And you can continue to support Full Stop at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag and always find a ton of reviews, essays, and interviews at www.full-stop.net. We'll see you next time.